0: Welcome to the Real Change series on the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg. Inspired by Sharon's newest book, Real
1: Change, this series features conversations with activists, artists, and teachers, all discussing the intersection of meditation and social action. To learn more, visit realchangebook.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with Jana Kaiser for the Real Change podcast series. Jana is a social entrepreneur and Harvard trained educator who has more than 20 years of experience partnering with youth, adults, and communities in their pursuit of equity, justice, and peace. At the age of 19, Jana founded Global Learning, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to education for peace and justice and served as Global Learning's Executive Director for 13 years. She has also served for six years as the Executive Director of Redwood City 2020, a collective impact organization that addresses inequity and the effects of poverty through health and wellness programming, community schools, family engagement, youth development, immigrant services, and anti-racism efforts. Yana is now dedicated to a robust consulting practice focused on educational innovation, mindfulness training, leadership coaching, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Welcome to the Meta Hour, Yana.
0: Oh, thank you, thank you for the invitation.
1: Now, how long has it been since we saw each other? I think it's been
0: about a year and a half. Oh. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm.
1: So this recording is is part of a larger series of conversations on the meta hour that's centered around the themes in my book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World. And as you know, I've I've long held the question for myself. What's the role of mindfulness and the role of loving kindness in changing the world? And this book in many ways is the culmination of that question. Or at least it's a it's the next chapter in my exploration. I don't know if it's really the culmination, actually. Um, I looked to veteran activists and social change agents in a variety of fields, such as yourself, and part of that exploration was seeing how meditation practice can serve as the foundation for an engaged life, whether the change we seek to make in the world is through activism, creativity, family, systems change, or beyond. So uh, we were together in Puerto Rico, uh, and it was an amazing opportunity for me to be able to teach and, and present some of the meditative practices that I had, I had myself done you know, for so long and been teaching for so long. And it's really because of Jana that I was able to do that. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that.
0: Oh, I, I would love to. Um, Sharon, it was such a gift that you were part of that project. Um, it's called Bahaku Boriqua, and it's a collaborative project that was, from the very get go, um, a labor of love that was one that many people had a big part in. And so um, the, the intention was to use meditation, mindful movement, and music to support collective and individual healing in Puerto Rico after um, the af- in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. Recognizing, of course, that Hurricane Maria was just one of the more recent um, of the challenges that the islands people have faced, but it was, um, you know, in, in lots of ways, we, we described it in the project, there were many hurricanes of mm-hmm. you know, economic um, challenge legacy of colonialism, um, certainly more recently, the earthquakes and political corruption as well. But um, initially, the intention, the the catalyst really for the project was Hurricane Maria. And um, I teamed up with partners from the Holistic Life Foundation and also um, a number of other folks that are both from the island and um, Puerto Ricans who are here in the U.S., to basically find um, locations where we could offer workshops that would have again these three parts of meditation, music, and mindful movement. And it, it was delightful. You know, we got to work in a variety of different parts of the island. Um, I was born in Puerto Rico. I have a I'm of mixed heritage, but I have Puerto Rican ancestry too. And it was just such a gift to get to go to return to a place where I spent my early childhood and get to contribute a little bit in partnership with, with, um, leaders on the Island and also visitors who came to help.
1: And I remember, um, there was such a variety of places Mm -hmm. in which, uh, you had been invited to bring this group. Um, so maybe you could describe that a little bit.
0: Sure. Yeah. We, um, it, it was terrific in how the um, how the doors opened um, for the project. We got to work in, um, in my home community in Aguadilla, which is on the, the far uh, west side of the island. We also worked in and around San Juan, um, also in the town of Caguas, which is a little bit south of San Juan, and then in the community of Ponce, which is in the very south of the island. And the workshop sites were really diverse. You know, they ranged from um, a community garden in Ponce that had been started by two local activists, um, Luis Enrique Gonzalez and Vashti Gonzalez. And we we taught that workshop um, outside on the ground and also got to participate in a stewardship project there. So we partnered up with people that were already working in the community garden and just contributed by weeding and planting and picking things. And then we did the meditation and music and mindful movement workshop. We also worked in a um, yoga studio in the south of the island in the community of Ponce um, called V Studio and had a great packed workshop there um, inside We also worked with the Boys and Girls Club of Puerto Rico um, in a a community um, in San Juan. And there we got to work primarily with six through 12 year olds, and there were lots Mm of them. So that was really fun. Um, and then in San Juan, we also worked um, in a community center called uh, Casa Dominicana. And that one was really special because we got to partner up with folks who were offering community acupuncture as a um, both public health service and stress relief. And so while people were getting community acupuncture, They also then received our workshop. And then afterwards, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, which was great. And then um, afterwards, we, one of our partners um, from a circus collective called Columpio Colectivo, um, a clown named Coco (laughs) came and then brought laughter after our workshop with acrobatics and um, clown arts. And so that was a really special collaboration. Um, we also worked in another community center. You were at this workshop, Sharon, um, at Casa Ruth, which is um, just a little bit outside of San Juan. And then we also did some in, in, um, in collaboration with partners, in, including you, at um, a nonprofit that does some terrific social work and youth development and community development efforts um, on a... Kind of a peninsula in San Juan called the Peninsula um, that Cantera Peninsula. And so there we did staff workshops for social workers, youth workshops for local leaders who are young people, um, and then a public workshop at a basketball court um, that was great fun because we um, actually, in collaboration with Coco the Clown, went recruiting door to door in the neighborhood and then brought people back to the this outdoor workshop in the local basketball court. Um, And then we also, in a more formal setting, offered workshops at the University of Puerto Rico in Aguadilla, both for students and for staff. And then finally, we also collaborated with um, uh, what's called a Center of Mutual Support, or Centro de Apoyo Mutuo, in the town of Caguas. And there we offered a workshop for these tremendous local leaders who our activists and um, community workers who have banded together after Hurricane Maria to um, collectively cook for neighbors, to offer acupuncture, to offer support um, in a local school. And so we were able to give the workshop to the leaders and volunteers who are working at that site. So in total, we worked in, I think it was 11 or 12 different sites um, or different workshops themselves, um, a couple of stewardship projects. We also in San Juan um, did a lot to clean up that had been really destroyed after Hurricane Maria um, to make it a place where people could gather again. And um, so that was also quite special in addition to the community garden that we worked in in Ponce. So, it, yeah, it was a terrific project. It was a gift to get to work there.
1: It was really it was a gift to me. It was really amazing. And I th- I think I made a promise that I would go back uh knowing some Spanish, which is
0: oh. not yet. <laughs> So I guess I can't go back yet. There's still, <laughs> still time. Yeah. It was um it was great actually to also have some folks who weren't spanish speakers um because Uh then that gave us the opportunity to have bilingual workshops and it it both provides a language opportunity for those who are attending for all of us um in english and spanish and then also it slows things down i think in a really nice way too so it it worked out you don't need to learn any more spanish
1: (laughs) i i do but i said two things about the uh quarantine for the pandemic you know um one was a quote I use often, which was, somebody said, uh, I always said I would really clean my house if I only had the time. Turned out mm-hmm. that wasn't the problem. <laughs> and uh, I guess I'm not learning Spanish after all, which <laughs> was one of my aspirations <laughs> in the beginning, but uh, mm-hmm. not happening
0: yet. Not yet. Yes. <laughs> not but yet. And
1: actually, you did a very interesting thing. Um, for me and and sylvia as well sylvia borstein as well when we were there together and teaching at different times um usually occasionally together uh and that you would have different interpreters from the audience Mm. come up Mm -hmm. and and serve in that way and uh because i think it it actually gave people a feeling of um ownership in a way you Mm. know of Mm -hmm. the experience
0: yeah That certainly was the intention. Um, We, you know, from the get-go, it was really, I think, important to us who were organizing the work um, that the project not be one of just outsiders coming in with solutions or with um, assumptions of what would be healing for folks, but instead to be a real collaborative opportunity for people to build on the tremendous resources that they already have, knowing that there's, a wealth of resiliency and um, tools that people are already using every day. And so these workshops are from at the very beginning of each one, we named that and then invited people to um, offer up tools that they were already using, knowing that um, there was collective wisdom. that could certainly be harvested and shared. And then also we aim to um, have it be a, a community of learners in every workshop too and also of leaders and so whether it was you know inviting people from the audience to help with translation or um, you know having partnership in terms of guiding some of the say mindful movement um, etc that was our intention was to have partnership that was honoring of the resources and the dignity that everyone present um, was holding. And can you tell me
1: uh, something about Redwood City 2020. It sounds like you uh, have been involved with it for a long time. So, what a prescient name for something hmm. <laughs> for a kind of remarkable year.
0: Yeah, it's um, so it is a year marker. It, the um, Redwood City 2020 is a collaborative that was started in the early 90s. And early on, it was called Redwood City 2000. And it was um, that, that also was a year marker, of course, of the year 2000. And um, in this community of Redwood City, which is just about 30 miles south of San Francisco, local leaders, um, government officials, youth, parents, and others um, did what many did in the 90s as we were looking towards the year 2000 and the new millennia um, to think about what do we want to have happen in this kind of new century and new millennium. And um, so they formed this collaborative, Redwood City 2000 and set goals and um, new strategies of how to reach those goals. And then 2000 came and went and the work was still, um, it was important, it was successful and also there were still lots to be done. And so at that time they changed the name to Redwood City 2000, or 2020. And um, then now of course, That future is also in the present as we're in the year 2020. But the the intention from the get-go was to think about um, how people could work across the social sector together on big projects that would be difficult for any one organization um, or person to do alone. And so the the concept is that uh, local government, the um, county government, local uh, school districts, hospitals, funding organizations, nonprofits, families, and youth all team up so that big issues like racism, poverty, um, school inequity can be addressed. So it, it's what's often called a collective impact organization, which just as the name would suggest is, is the idea that people work together um, to, to create impact, to create positive change.
1: And how did you come to your own meditation practice? Uh,
0: well, I was um, I was in Central America. I, I worked for years, um, as you mentioned at the beginning, as the um, di- executive director of an organization called Global Learning. And um, I started the group when I was quite young, and so I was I was in Central America, and I um, was working at that time mostly in Costa Rica, Nicaragua, and in Mexico. Um, with the organization. And, um, so my aunt came to visit and I think she was, um, gently and supportively, uh, concerned (laughs) that I was, um, kind of burning the candle at both ends. And I, you know, I was working really hard and like many of us in the service sector, you know, activists, um, it, much was going out and i was certainly in terms of energy and um my time and not quite as much was coming in uh though the work was really fulfilling my self care practices needed some help and so my aunt came to visit and she had actually Sharon, she had one of your books with her
1: oh really and, <laughs> yeah
0: and um loving kindness and she she had just started meditating and i at that time i actually didn't really know anybody who had a sitting practice. And so she came to visit and she was sitting every morning and she said, I've been reading this book and it's been helpful for me. And so I bought you a copy. Aww. And so she gave it to me and it changed my life. I, I started, I was probably about 26 or 27 and I started to, I read the book. I started to practice on my own. And that's how I started.
1: That's a beautiful story. I'm so happy. <laughs>
0: no, <laughs> well, it. Um, thank you. It really, you know, it was the. It was just the message I needed at that time, and the. My practice has deepened over time, but it, you know, I still remember. Um, how transformative it was just to even have in those early days especially I didn't meditate for very long I maybe you know five to fifteen minutes uh, at a time per day and those five or fifteen minutes changed me they changed me as a leader they changed me as a um, person that you know so I'm, I'm very grateful for for that exposure and thank goodness my aunt Lisa brought that book. <laughs>
1: That's so lovely. That's one of the best stories I've heard. I think it's only taught by this friend of mine who um, we'd met at a conference and then we just lost touch with each other. And, and it was also and Kindness, which was my first book. Uh, she was in a bookstore and it fell on her head. <laughs> <laughs> oh! So she picked it up and she said, I need to get back in touch with her.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it was almost that dramatic. <laughs> yeah. oh, I think my aunt so probably sweet. that maybe that was plan B. She was gonna drop it in my head if I didn't listen.
1: <laughs> Throw it at her. <laughs> that's so great. And and how did you come to the path of activism? Has that always been a part of your consciousness?
0: Oh, I that's a great question. I I mean I think that I I grew up in communities of people who helped each other, both in my, you know, my parents are um, humble, quiet doers. And um, I also, my father was in the Coast Guard. And so I grew up on military bases. And people in the military community help each other. You know, they help their neighbors. They um, have a, a sense of service that I think permeates into the communities that service families live in. Um, And then, you know, I when I went to college, I felt really overwhelmed by all the resources um, that were available in higher education. And at the same time was living in a community that um, the local elementary school budgets were um, cut very severely. And so it was this dramatic moment for me in that I was for the first time in a context where I had tremendous resource um, and so many options of things to learn and to study. And at the same time, knew what it was like and, you know, was watching um, schools be underfunded and have, um, limited resources in a way that often cuts out. I remember I was really struck by a a newspaper article that was describing this budget crisis and that all the music programs and some of the art um, programming was also going to be cut. And so I started to think at that time of, well, how do we funnel some of these resources from higher education into public schools? And it was um, at that time that I started to think about what became Um, Global learning, the idea for the organization was really quite simple. It was to think about how um, we could bring hands on learning opportunities into elementary school classrooms. And at the time, I I recruited college students to bring in art and science and environmental ed and geography and multicultural learning, uh, all kinds of language lessons and more that um, the university students were passionate about. And we, we brought these lessons with materials so the young people could learn in small groups of three to five. And in, they, in the process, they were interacting with a local university student who got to talk to them about scholarships and what it was like to be the first person in their family to go to college. Mm-hmm. And um, so that that was really transformative for me. And I started to think about, well, how could we do this everywhere? Um, and in communities that were even more hard hit. And so I think it was really, um, that experience of basically kind of seeing how relatively easy it was to, to mobilize folks and then bring these lessons into public schools. And then that, um, transferred into, you know, this global context because I was also interested in volunteering myself internationally and I couldn't find an organization or an opportunity, um, that was affordable. I was, you know, on, at school on a scholarship and had limited uh, uh, financial resources, but a lot of time and energy (laughs) and, Mm -hmm. um, was concerned that my most motivated and talented friends at the university were not being actively recruited into public service and so started to think well maybe at the time I thought oh this organization could happen sometime in the future and then when I realized that how hard it was to volunteer internationally for a low cost um, if you don't have a college degree I started to think well maybe I could um, offer this and so I uh, took off a year of school and worked, I, I guess, uh, four jobs <laughs> and saved money mm. and, and then um, traveled for about six months looking for a partner community. And so found found that in the town of Liberia in Costa Rica. And uh, then it, it launched from there.
1: That's just amazing. <laughs> I mean, really
0: well, it was um, again. It was fairly simple in lots of ways, and that we brought. Um, it was kind of the same model that I had been doing at my college, where we had a team of of young adults, of university students, who, um, in the global context, it was also really important to me that the team wasn't just a group of outsiders. Um, as you know, many know in the world of international development too often. It's um, just people from outside of a community that come in um, mm-hmm. to kind of with the white horse mentality to offer solutions. Um, and so the, the our intention was to, to intend to have a bit more of a, a partnership and more of a kind of a humble model of bringing um, local people with peers from the international community to really work together. And so our, our teams were always made up of half of, um, the volunteers were always from the host community. And then the other half were from the international community. And then we brought um, hands-on art and science and environmental education, geography, again, these same very similar subjects, um, but into schools that didn't have them at all. And um, still, you know, interacted in very small groups. And over time, you know, our teaching strategies became more sophisticated. Um, I went to graduate school and was able to bring back, you know, some student-centered learning techniques. But we were also co-creating curricula and uh, pedagogy that our intention was to really flip some of the teacher-centered kind of top-down directive teaching that happens often in communities that have been colonized Mm -hmm. um, and have it be more student-centered and empowering and leadership-oriented. And so that's what happened. And it was, um, you know, from the first program, it it was successful. And I I felt confident about the parts that were going to be happening in the classroom. What was a big surprise to me was how transformative it was for the volunteers themselves and and how transformative it was was for me as a volunteer. Um, You know, it kind of redefined what I thought of as of family and friendship, and um, it really changed the trajectory of my life. So I think, I guess in reflection, you know, that question of how did I get into activism or public service it certainly probably actually was just started in these global learning teams of realizing um, the potential that was present and then wanting to do my part to contribute to it.
1: And one of the things that was notable about the programs that you had organized in Puerto Rico was the inclusion of music. Hmm. You know, there are many programs that have, um, not enough, but there are many programs that have mindful movement and meditation. And uh, what led you to so consciously include music?
0: Well, I suppose in part because I'm Puerto Rican (laughs) and, Uh you know, (laughs) knew that how transformative the power of music can be and also how much we as humans rely on music for joy and for strength when things are hard. And in my own life, that's certainly been true. And then also, um, I was able to partner up with a tremendous musician named Maria Jose Montijo, who was our primary um, uh, music leader on our Bajacuburicua team in Puerto Rico. And so Maria Jose is a, uh, sh- she's a poet, she's a harpist, and she writes beautiful uh, music that she plays on her harp that is very um, politically and socially empowering and energizing. <laughs> she um, writes, basically, she my interpretation is that she brings activist poetry to the harp, and mm. so it, it was really a nice um, fit for our project because you know it, it was both um, rooted in Puerto Rico. Maria Jose is Puerto Rican, um, and all of her songs are infused by both her Puerto Rican heritage and her awareness of Puerto Rican politics, and also. Um, her commitment to change and so that, that just fit right into the project and it was such a nice addition because again the harp is such a soothing instrument and then it was combined with these really powerful words
1: Have you been back to Puerto Rico since our time there together?
0: I haven't I um, I had actually intended to return six months later and then I had some pretty serious health issues come up right after mm-hmm. we the project and so um, that trip back has been delayed. And now because of the COVID pandemic, it's mm-hmm. even harder, of course, you know, to get there. But, um, in part because of COVID, now we're thinking creatively about how to have, um, to continue to support people on the island and to continue to partner with people on the island, um, in the context of COVID. So, um, some of the things that we'll, we'll be doing actually this summer, um, is, are offering some meditation sittings via Zoom. Nice. And they'll be um, the folks who attended the workshops that we offered in January of 2019 will all be invited um, to, you know, those who have internet access and a Zoom account, you know, will be able to attend for free. How terrific. And um, so that that's a really, it's a quite a, a new, um, new initiative that, again, we're kind of adapting to the COVID context. And so um, soon, actually, you and others who participated in the initial project will get an invitation um, to to participate in any way you want to, but um, whether that's it's... That's great. Well, I
1: better learn Spanish really quickly.
0: <laughs> well, we can we can <laughs> <I> translate. <promise. laughs> yeah, there's... Um, yeah, but here you go, Sharon. Maybe that's the... the um, Fire in the belly to learn a few more
1: <laughs> words. <laughs> I'll clean my house, I promise. <laughs> I don't know that that's really wonderful. I mean, I really, uh, you know, I felt the generosity of the people and, and the incredible hospitality and and the struggle, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it was so um, complex there mm-hmm. in so many ways, and And so much has happened, you know, in terms of trials and tribulations and challenges
0: since then. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's been on so many levels, right, from government corruption to the earthquakes, um, the inequity of impact of the COVID pandemic, Mm -hmm. and more. You know, the economic um, situation was already rough before Hurricane Maria, of course, and in the time since we've been there, you know, is, is only deepened. So it, um, yeah, there's tremendous challenge present. And also I think it's a, a place where we can look to for examples of resiliency and strength mm-hmm. and community mm-hmm. spirit. And I think in the the Baja Kuborikwa project that we were working on together in January, um, one thing that really struck me was how active young people um are on the island. And it, that's a certainly a growing movement. And we saw that in our workshops. We saw that in the way um who we are partnering with. And, you know, it's really tremendous where people are like for example, the community garden that I mentioned in the town of Ponce, um, Luis Enrique and Vashti and other young people in their community basically took over an empty lot that was had been It was um, locked and empty and unfortunately had also become a site for um, drug use. And so there were a lot of needles in the lot and they were looking for a place to to grow food so that there, you know, we would have um, a little bit more of a cushion if something like Hurricane Maria ever happened again. And there was an elder in the community who opened the gate, um, unlocked it and said, go ahead, you can use this land. And so they they pulled out hundreds and hundreds of needles and um, cleaned up the space and then have very innovatively created water systems and planted local native plants and are growing food now for the community. And all of that was you know, done on a volunteer basis, and it was just neighbors helping each other. But I think it's also an example of these young people um, taking matters into their own hands and doing what they can to to support others.
1: Every time you mention the name of a town or a region, I think of. The song that Manuel Miranda wrote after the hurricane, which is just the names of all those
0: regions. Mm. So, <laughs> say, I know that. <laughs> yeah, and it's certainly you know Puerto Rico is a, it's a very small island in many ways, but it's also very diverse, and so there's you know tremendous geographic diversity and certainly um, differences in towns and communities. So it was really special for us to get, we we kind of joked that it was like we were um, a traveling meditation band. You know, we had (laughs) two bands that we traveled around um, doing the workshops.
1: That's so great. And um, because you mentioned joy and resilience, uh, I thought maybe we could talk about that for a few minutes because... Right. Even just I think of Puerto Rico and I think about the challenges and how many and they're so ongoing. And um, and yet, as you said, that uh, you thought of music because you're Puerto Rican and you think of joy and, and the uplifting of the spirit. And uh, there's so much conditioning here in the States of, um, or I should say the mainland probably, um, you know, that if you're, opening to joy you're avoiding pain and Mm. of course that's the way it's often used but uh if you're purposely trying to not avoid seeing pain and bearing witness then it just feels wrong sometimes
0: Mm.
1: and and yet uh we have to i think really think about what resilience is made of and and our goal which you know should be to have a sustained effort in some place or uh certainly having a sustained connection in some place. And what happens when we just feel depleted and burnt out and overcome and and the things that we may need to put in place so that we don't fall sway so much to those.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I think there's such wisdom in that. And certainly, you know, I think there is this misconception that when we focus on good things, um, that it, that there's a kind of inherent dichotomy that then we have to close our eyes to what's bad. And for me, I think that it's more that when we resource ourselves with joy and with laughter, even in meditation, you know, when we're, for me, what's really important is, um, to focus on grounding and resourcing in the body, not so that I look away from what's hard, but so that I have the capacity to sustain my gaze, you know, to have, I think that's true for all of us that if we really, you know, we I I, I look at joy as a resource that it fills us up, it sustains us, it allows us to keep going when things are hard um, so that we can actually contribute and, you know, do the hard, courageous work that is needed for us to really create the systemic change that our world is calling for. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I think you're completely right that the, you know, it's almost, um, I feel like my, my own meditation practice has sort of blended into the rest of my life where now, you know, I have been influenced by Rick Hansen's work and Mm -hmm. his idea of, um, you know, staying with what's good, staying with moment, you know, getting in touch with times either real or imagined that we have felt calm or we felt safety, we felt security and basically fueling our brain with those experiences so that, again, we have the stability and the stamina to to do the big work or the small work, right? The <laughs>
1: Yeah. What's Rick's phrase? The neurons that fire
0: together.
1: Wire together, right? Neurons that fire together, wire together. And I think part of his um, thesis is that we have a kind of conditioning, uh, as evolutionary biologists would say, to look for the danger, to look mm-hmm. for the threat, right. to look for what's wrong. And it takes a kind of intentionality to also look for what's good.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And not, not like force or coercion, but real intentionality in that we need to do that because I think in psychological terms it's called savoring, you know. He mm-hmm. said so if if you just have like a a good experience, um, a pleasant experience, it's gonna kinda of pass by. But if you stop a moment and take it in, like, wow, that felt really good then that gives you a kind of buoyancy which allows you to see the the challenges differently from a more energized place.
0: Right. Right. And it, it does so much for our bodies too, right. Of enabling our nervous systems to calm down so that then we get out of that chronic flight, fight, freeze state. And, you know, I think about it in the context of COVID that as we're, you know, in these situations of chronic stress and our cortisol levels are high, it, is so powerful to focus on even on these bodily sensations of goodness and safety and solidity that then can lower those cortisol levels and help our immune systems work. Right. Or Mm -hmm. as Rick also says that our brains are, like Teflon for the good things and Velcro for the bad (laughs) at that point that you're making of that, you know, we're wired for it. And I, I feel like that really resonates, um, in for me, for sure. And also like in the Puerto Rican workshops that we did, we talked about that a little bit and then did very, um, rather simple bodily kind of grounding exercises of, um, um, Leslie Booker was our kind of resident leader of the mindful movement portion, and Leslie Booker has so many really powerful, simple um, moves of, you know, just scanning your physical space space with your eyes open and breathing at the same time. And it's remarkable that even just a moment or two of that can be transformative to how we feel. And certainly, I think in my own life, it's been the secret to feeling better physically as I've had some health issues arise. Um, so much is wired into the nervous system. And so then we have either physical trauma or you know, these, the trauma of racism, the trauma of oppression. It's, I think, really revolutionary to counterbalance that with these body-centered practices to start to unwind some of it. It's powerful
1: so great i'm wondering if in closing you could actually lead us in some kind of practice
0: sure yeah i would love to um well i'll just invite you to find a position that feels right for you whether that's sitting up or laying down standing up even but we'll we'll begin the practice just simply with the sound of the bell Let's begin by simply resting attention on our feet. Noticing where our feet are right now. Are they resting on the ground, tucked underneath us, perhaps on a chair, a cushion, on the bed? Just noticing where your feet are right this moment. And allowing them to be heavy, to rest where they are. Feeling from the inside out any stability and structure that's underneath your feet. The solidness and the support of the floor, chair, whatever's underneath. And then bringing your attention up to your ankles and your shins and your knees, your thighs and your hips. Inviting a resting and a settling of these body parts too. Knowing that rest doesn't need to be absolute. Even just 5 or 10% more letting go can be helpful. And noticing if there's support underneath your lower body too. Is there a cushion at your back? Support underneath your legs from a chair? Just resting into this support, allowing your body to settle into it. Then bringing attention up to your abdomen, your chest, lower back, mid-back, and upper back. Inviting a softening as you breathe. Noticing a stretch on the inhale of fullness. And a release and a settling and grounding as you Exhale. Bringing your attention up to your shoulders, your arms, down into your hands. Noticing where your hands are right now. Are they touching each other, touching your legs, perhaps resting next to you? Just also allowing your hands to settle. Recognizing in this moment how much your hands do how much they contribute and they work, in the effort. Just inviting in this moment a release and a resting of these hardworking body parts, allowing them to rest, to be held. Noticing if there's a temperature. Are they cool or are they warm? Maybe they're just neutral. Just offering your attention and inviting a settling of your hands. Bringing your attention up to your upper shoulders, your neck, and your throat. Just recognizing what arises with these words. The word throat, the word neck, even the word breathe. Breathe. And allowing whatever is here to be here. Just acknowledging any neutrality or any charge. Offering a little compassion and understanding with your breath. And also inviting a softening. Allowing for an ease in this moment. Allowing your own breath to pool in your throat and to soften that space, to just accompany. Inviting this softening to spread up into your your jaw, softening your cheeks, the muscles around your eyes. Inviting a spaciousness in between your eyebrows and in your forehead. And allowing for a release of any holding that may be around your skull, around your head, any tension. Just inviting a heaviness in your body, a settling, and ease. And then looking in the body where it's easiest to feel your own breath. Perhaps in your nose as the air comes in and out of the body. In your chest as your lungs fill with air and then gently fall. Or maybe in your abdomen as the belly fills like a balloon with air and then gently falls towards your spine on the exhale. Which is simply bringing your attention to one of these spots. Noticing as the body breathes itself, if there's anything that feels pleasant about it. Perhaps there's a pleasantness to the stretch of your ribs on the inhale. Or to the settling and softness and grounding on the exhale. Just taking a deep breath in through your nose. And a long, slow exhale through your mouth, even inviting a sigh sound on the exhale. Knowing that it's on the exhale that our body really gets the cue. It's okay enough right now. It's okay to rest and digest and to be right here exactly as, as we are. Breathing in, allowing the air to pool like water in your belly. And then on the exhale, engaging the imagination and sending the air down your legs, all the way down to your feet, and then allow it to continue into the earth. Sending the air down. Breathing in, allowing the air to pool, pool like water in your belly. And then on the exhale, sending the air down, down your hips, down your legs, down to your feet, all the way down into the earth, allowing the breath to root and to ground and to stabilize. Taking a deep breath in one more time, breathing in through your nose and allowing the air to pool. And then breathing out sending the air down, down your legs, down to your feet, all the way into the earth. Again, allowing the active breath to just root, stabilize, and ground. And then broadening your awareness to take in your body as a whole. Just noticing if there's a spot that feels tense Maybe there's a place of an ache or a holding somewhere. Maybe the feeling is acute or very, maybe it's very subtle. But just kind of gently scanning the body with a curious attention, looking to see if there's a place of discomfort or kind of unpleasant sensation. And then again, engaging the breath. And imagining that you're bringing the breath to that spot, whether it's subtle or acute, if it's a holding in the belly or burning in the chest, an ache in the head. It's just simply bringing your breath to that location, not to change it or fix it, but just to be with it. Bringing your breath there as a witness allowing it to fill and cushion that spot. And then on the exhale, just inviting a softening around it, letting go. Breathing in awareness and breathing out a connection, knowing that others have felt this way too. This too is part of this human experience and it belongs. Again, taking a deep breath in and bringing your breath to that spot. And then on the exhale, just allowing your breath to circle it, to cushion it. And also inviting any letting go that's ready to happen without force, which is simply as an invitation. If there's anything that you don't need right now, allowing it to flow out with your breath. Breathing in, making just a little more space for this experience to be present. And breathing out, inviting a letting go and a release of anything that you don't need right now. And then just simply bringing attention back to that spot where it's really easy for you to feel your breath. At your nose, at your chest, in your abdomen. Even considering putting a hand on your belly or your chest. And again, just noticing any pleasantness with the breath. The stretch of the nourishment and the fullness. Or perhaps the release and the settling and the letting go and the exhale. Exhale. And also allowing your awareness to again just rest on any place that your body is held. The floor beneath your feet. Support underneath your legs, or your lower back. Perhaps your own hands touching each other. But Just bringing your attention to one of these spots. One, su- one spot of support. Just on this most bodily level allowing your brain and Body to register the simple okayness that may be present in that place. Taking a deep breath in and bringing your breath, bringing your awareness to that place. And then breathing out, allowing your body to settle and root into the earth. And as we begin to transition, just allowing your awareness to take in any sounds of your space inside or outside. Even the sound of your own breath. It's allowing those sounds to register. And then also taking in in your awareness the sound of this bell. Breathing in the sound of the bell, almost like it's a a warm elixir of some sort. Breathing it in and taking it as a well-wish. A well-wish for you, for your strength and stability. A well-wish for you to have the resources that you need, both inner and outer, to contribute in big and small ways to the highest good. And also allowing this spell to echo out beyond us, offering it up to the collective as a wish for all to use the resources that we have to move us all towards the highest good.
1: Thank you so much for that. That was really beautiful.
0: Thank you, Sharon. It's been such a gift and opportunity, just a a joy to get to talk with you.
1: It's so nice to reconnect. And uh, thank you all for listening. To learn more about Yana's work, you can visit www.janakiser.com. This has been the Real Change Series on the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Real Change is available September 1st in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. Learn more at realchangebook.com.